I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade has a way of asking questions about the American public school system that are as precise as they are provocative. One of his questions, why do we take children by law from their families at age six for 13 consecutive years for eight hours a day? The response, he says, should be youth wellness. Every school, he says, quote, should make a promise to every family that when you drop your child off to us in the morning and turn your back and walk away, our promise to you is that when you come back and pick them up, your child will be more well than when you drop them off. He knows that's impossible. But the point for Dr. Duncan Andrade is that by simply making that promise, our schools have the chance every day to own it, apologize, and make it right. And while the goal of wellness might be simple, his remedy to reach it is not. A complete rethink and rebuild of public education, one built through something he calls community responsiveness. Dr. Duncan Andrade, professor of Latina Latino Studies and Race and Resistance Studies at San Francisco State University, also seeks to bring his vision to life through the East Oakland School that he co-founded, the Roses and Concrete Community School. In lectures he delivers around the world and through his books and numerous journal articles on effective practices in schools. One note before we begin, an ask from me to you. If you like our 180 conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade. Dr. Duncan Andrade, thanks so much for joining. I appreciate your time. My pleasure to be here. So I watched a panel recently that you were part of that addressed perhaps the central question of our time. Who gets to thrive? Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond outlined the various crises and reckonings we've all faced over the last year, public health, economic, climate, civil rights. And she then noted that such moments often lead to generational social changes. And that felt to me like a good place to start with you. Are we in a moment now that can transform the education system we have? Do we have the opportunity to rethink the project? And where do you see the greatest barriers to the kind of change students and communities need? Well, I, I guess I would start by saying that we always have that opportunity to rethink what we are doing, particularly as it relates to how we're treating and taking care of um, children. Hmm. This moment is as as good as any, maybe better, right, than than other times, because I think there's a level of increasing awareness that what we have been doing is not working, hmm. um, and it's you know it's it's obviously not working for the nation's most vulnerable and wounded children. Um, And I think there's an increasing awareness that it's just not working for huge cross-sections of children. Um, And, and, you you know, you see things like this, the sort of um, uh, constant repeating cycle of these school shootings. And and these are often happening in um, wealthy or moderately wealthy communities. places where there I think there was a a kind of national presumption that schools were pretty good there and that they were, you know, doing a pretty good job with kids. 
Um, and so I think um, that along with this long pause because of pause, I'm using air quotes, right? Um, sort of uh, rejiggering of how we um, were trying to do school, trying to push it online, um, suddenly started raising all these questions about not just about how do we do this, but about what are we doing? You suddenly like you're in children's homes. Yeah. Right. And you're beginning to realize that um, this project uh, of public school has at um, at best ignored um, what's happening in homes. Are you seeing a greater awareness of what people like you are like? Yeah, what's the surprise here? This has been going on for years. And maybe that's, you know, on some level, the opportunity. There are always problems and crises and half the challenge is getting some type of wider awareness around those those problems and challenges. If I'm being frank, which I always am, I see a very similar cycle that I've seen throughout my nearly 30 year um, career in this work. And what I'm seeing is an, an increased amount of rhetoric. So people are talking about it more, but on the ground in reality, I mean, you know, I'm working with schools and school districts all over the nation. I'm really troubled by the, the crisis of courage that I see in educational leadership that, that if you were going to fundamentally rethink the project, of public schools um, as an educational leader. This would be the moment, right? Because this is, this is the moment where people wouldn't look too sideways at that because they're sort of open to um, all kinds of change that has to happen. And, the moment we've and been waiting for. Some of us, right? Yeah. I, I, think, I think there's you know, a decent cross-section of the nation's population um, for at some level, you know, those that are particularly benefiting from the existing system, right, and the kind of um, the, the apartheid-like um, experience and outcomes that are happening that aren't asking fundamental questions of purpose and meaning. Um, why are we doing this, right? Why do we take children by law from their families at age six for 13 consecutive years for eight hours a day, right? Why are we doing that, right? And, and I think there's a, there's a decent cross-section of people, particularly those in power, um, that are not inclined to really want to explore that question in a meaningful way because schools from, from their sort of social, political, economic um, worldview are working, right, more or less. Um, and so, but, but in those like on the ground doing the work, um, and I think an increasing number of, of, you know, families and, and um, young people and educators are saying like, no, this, this isn't working and it hasn't been maybe ever. Um, and so why aren't we, why aren't we using this moment since we're coming back, right? 
why aren't we using this moment to do some fundamental redesign, to do some real soul searching, right? And, and, and purpose investigation. And, and, right, I have to say at the same time that I don't, I do not personally or professionally um, lay that at the feet solely of educational leaders, right? And I don't think it's fair because what's happened is that when all of this started to unfold with the pandemic and, you know, going online and, and um, all these new risk factors were thrown on educators, um, no, n- no fundamental increase in resources, no radical increase in resources, um, and, yes. and yet a radical increase in expectations that schools adapt on the fly, real yeah. time, completely rethink, redo everything that they're doing, right? And so where in that project is there space to dream, space to redesign, right? So I, I do feel like there's been a real crisis of courage, right? And I understand why, because now that we've been asked to come back, right, into schools, what I'm seeing all over the country is a level of anxiety, stress, exhaustion that is really unhealthy, right, for the adults. And when you get into, into those moments, I mean, we know like neurobiologically, physiologically, like when you get into those moments, you tend to default, right, to the place of least conflict, right, to just to make it through. So what's happening in schools is that they're basically trying to come back to do what they did before they went into pandemic. Right. At a and time of increase. Yes. And then go figure ahead. out how to do that in a way that is medically safe. New challenges, new, if not increased expectations, increased requirements in an increasingly competitive, challenging world with new ideas and new obstacles being thrown at all of us, including students, all at once. I've heard you ask that question before, and I love the question. Why do we allow our government, why do we encourage our government to take our kids at age six, take them for 13 years? Why do we let them do that? What do we hope comes from that? I'll answer this wearing all my hats simultaneously, right? So wearing parent parent hat, right, Uh Uh to school-aged boys, wearing my researcher's hat. Um, wearing my, you know, veteran classroom teacher hat, wearing my um, East Oakland 3400 block community hat, right? All, all pointing the same direction in my answer to that. Yeah. The, the um, sole foundational purpose of public schools should be youth wellness. That's it, right? And, and, and what I mean by that is- Yeah, that, what do you mean by wellness? Every yeah. school- Every school should um, make a promise to every family that when you drop your child off to us in the morning and turn your back and walk away, our promise to you is that when you come back and pick them up, your child will be more well than when you drop them off. Now, I can say, right, as, as, a a skilled, accomplished educator, that that's impossible. Mm. Like you cannot do that for every child every day. And that's okay. That's okay. Right. But you have to make the promise to the society 
and two families. That, that is our, right, that is our foundational purpose, is to make sure that they, they leave the building more well than when they came in. And when we miss the mark, which we will, we will own it and we will atone. And atonement means that you both apologize and you make it right. So you know when you miss the mark with the child, a child is leaving less well than when they came in the building, that you have to pour more medicine in on that child the next day. There's a debt due, right? And, and every family and every child should know, right, that that's the project. There's a, a group of us who have been working together for a long time to support schools on this journey. Um, and the, the, the group is called Community Responsive Education. And one of the things that we've worked really hard on for the last few years is to actually come up with a, a community educator, um, researcher, um, cross-dialogue definition of what we mean when we talk about wellness. The domains that popped up are mind, body, spirit, emotion, really in kind of three areas. One is the, the inner self to the mind, body, spirit, and emotion in the individual, right, should be well, right? And if it's not, right, there should be focus on healing, right? Because as they say, Hurt people hurt people. Hmm. But, but there's a second sentence, right, that is not said enough in the society, which is the other side of that coin. And the other side of that coin is healed people heal people, right? When you get medicine, you have medicine. So, so the project of, of healing the inner self is also the project of he, healing the micro ecosystem and the broader meta ecosystem of our communities and societies. The second um, kind of strand um, is interpersonal, right? So how young people interact with each other, how young people interact with adults, how adults interact with adults, how the community interacts with the school, right? all of those are the, the, the interpersonal elements of wellness. Um, and then the third uh, element is, is interconnectedness. So this is the relationship to the natural world, to animals, to, to uh, the ecosystem that is currently banging back so hard on us, right? So we, we talked about the pandemic. We didn't mention the fact that we're getting torrential rains and wildfires and, right, and schools are having to deal with all of this too. Tremendous devastation and human loss on, yes, on top of the pandemic. Absolutely. Right. So, so um, if we're going to deal with all this stuff, with, um, you know, global climate change, with health pandemics, with white supremacy, structural racism, radicalized economic inequality, right, all of which are in our face right now, full force, if we're going to deal with that, from my perspective, the single best possibility to deal with it in a way that is actually sustainable is to deal with it with our children in our schools. That's the place. That's, that's the place because we come up with so many adult solutions, right? But because they're not embedded in the material experience and conditions of children, then once those adults age out, we're right back to having to tackle these problems. 
But if we say, no, these are, this is the purpose of public schools. This is what we need in a pluralistic multiracial democracy. We need young people, not that are just prepared for college and career, but young people that are actually prepared to participate civically, critically in a pluralistic multiracial democracy that is well. We spend, I think, estimates are as high as 100 times as much on healthcare as, as the next closest nation, right? Because when do you need healthcare? When you're sick. Well, that's when we give it is when we're, when, when we're sick. We, that's, there's the whole discussion around healthcare and how much is given once we're sick as opposed to giving the medicine before we're sick. Right. It's reactive, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's not about wellness. Yeah. Right. And so, and, and those, all of those elements of wellness have to be curated and developed, right? Foundationally in, in, in human development which means that you've got to do that with young people, right? So just imagine a world, imagine a society where every young person for eight hours a day for 13 consecutive years walks into an institution whose fundamental promise and premise is their wellness. Now you can teach every single state standard in every single state, with a, a myopic focus on wellness. I can teach you reading with a focus on wellness. I can teach you math, PE, science, STEM, music, art, anything you want, right? So the, 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 the structure and the way in which we're kind of processing what we do in schools doesn't necessarily need to change. What needs to change is the why. Why are we having children read? Why are we having children learn times tables, mm. right? And, and if the purpose there is to say, so that you are well, right? In your mind, in your body, in your spirit, in your emotion, then to me, right? That's a project that guarantees, guarantees thriving communities and a thriving society. And, and anything short of that, guarantees exactly what we have so if we're good with what we have cool carry on nothing for you to do then you've got new work to look for exactly <laughs> every empire in the history of the world right has failed and yep. if we are to be something other than a, a recurring history this may very well be the moment where we have to have that, that conversation with ourselves as a society in the mirror and say that, that this, you know, this center cannot hold. So we're coming apart and we are careening towards a cliff and, and, and I'm not a doomsdayer at all. I am imminently hopeful. You're an optimist. No, Cornell West makes this really important distinction between optimism and hope, right? Mm -hmm. He says that, that it, it, West says, as a black man in America, I've never had an optimistic day in my life. Because optimism is when you look at the existing conditions and data, and you believe that things will get better. Okay, hope is when you look at the existing conditions and data, and you believe things will get better anyway. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm hopeful and I'm, I'm hopeful primarily because I'm around young people and educators all the time. It's instructive that young people show up. Everybody should have to attend kindergarten day one every year, just as a reminder. And see what goes on. And just as a reminder about how our babies show up, right? They show up so full of joy, intrigue, interest, wondering, and 13 years later, right? We, we have to chokehold them <laughs> to, to get them into school, right? That is such an indictment of that institution. What happens? That is such a painful narrative. What are we doing where we just crush all of that wonderment, right? Out of our children under the auspices that we're preparing them for adulthood, right? That we're preparing them for the economy. That, it, it, that, that Maybe the best example, right, of this, the, the, the doublespeak that I see happening is this story. I, I was working with this group of superintendents, you know, some of them really big districts and then some, some medium and smaller size districts. And anyway, we're they had brought me in to have some conversations with them about equity. And um, I, I, I kind of paused the conversation in, in midstream. And I said, I, 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 I'm going to give you all a forced choice survey right now mm-hmm. um, to, to figure out where, where we want to go with this conversation. And it's going to be a really simple survey. It's going to be one question. And when you answer it, I don't want you to think about the students in your district. I want you to think about your own children. And if you don't have children, then just pretend, right? How would you answer this question for your own children? So here's the question. At the end of the school year, your children will um, score out in one of two ways. Option A is that they score in the 90th percentile on all state and national testing. And they score in the bottom quartile for indicators of youth wellness. Mm. Or your children can score in the 90th percentile for indicators of youth wellness, but they will score in the bottom quartile for all state and national tests. How many of you choose option one? Nobody. Mm. How many of you choose option two? All of them, except for the recalcitrant ones that are like, I'm not voting. I, I get what you're trying to do. Right? Yeah. You can't force you can't force choice me. Into right. Anything. Exactly. I'm a superintendent. Right? <laughs> um, and and I said, yeah, good. Me, too. Right. So cool. Right. How do you measure that in your districts? Right. And exactly. They all shook their heads. Yeah, there's. Yeah. You don't. Right. And some of them were like, well, we use the healthy kids survey. Right. And I was like, okay, that's that's not bad. But the healthy kids survey doesn't give you granular level data. You it does not it does not give you any insight into how an individual child is experience experiencing wellness or or not. Right. So that's where I want to take our conversation. You know, we measure what matters in schools. Right. Um, uh Angela Duckworth told me once that you, we measure what we treasure. Okay, so if you look at what schools are measuring, it, it's like looking at a budget, 
Yes. Right? When you look at a budget, you see priorities. Those are the priorities. If you want to see priorities in schools, look at what gets measured. Yeah. And, and, and the people that understand this most profoundly are the children. So we, we, we have all the right rhetoric, right? This is a family. We love you. This is a community. We care about you. But at the end of the day, kids know that as long as I score well on these tests, you're good with me, no matter what's happening in my life. You were talking about where we are right now and, and headspace and our positioning to be able to bring kids to that point of wellness. And you talked about all of the things that, that are the, the, the current obstacles. You talked about the pandemic. You talked about climate change. And we see those are very, very, very tangible to so to to so many of it. We see it on the news every day. You also talked about racism. And we see that a lot every day. But I'd love to understand from you directly, how does racism manifest itself in schools? Well, the very design of our public school system is racist. Um, and, you know, anybody who knows the history of public schools knows that um, it's, it's not de facto, it's by design. And so another example or metaphor that I tend to use with folks is I, you know, I ask them, how many of you own a home? And then I say, okay, well, um, those of you that own a home, when you bought the home, what was the first thing you had inspected? And, you know, they all say the foundation. And I say, oh, okay, well, why not the roof? Why not the double pane windows? Why not the, you know, state-of-the-art kitchen? Why not the flooring? And, you know, the obvious answer is because if you've got all those nice trappings, but your foundation is not solid, it's all coming in on itself. And I think that metaphor extends neatly to schools, that we, if we're going to do this purpose work, um, then we have to, we, it, it's, you know, Malcolm X said once of, of all the forms of study, the one that's most likely to reward your efforts is the study of history, because the truth is lying there. So if you study the history of public schools, what's going on is not confusing at all. It's like, oh, that makes total sense. This is exactly what this project was intended to do. It's, I, Ernest Morrell and I um, wrote a book together many years ago when we were um, teaching in Oakland. And um, in the first chapter, one of the um, positions that we take up is that, that what if we approach this um, problem of um, rethinking public schools by starting with the position that um, public schools are not failing, that they're, they're doing exactly what they're designed to do. Um, and how would that change the way in which we right, tackled the problem, right? M my mother, who's 92, um, has, for as long as I can remember, told me, boy, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, and I think we keep trying to fix schools. And then that, that influences the way in which we right, approach the work from, from the very beginning. But if we looked at schools and we said, actually, schools are doing exactly what they're designed to do, which means that we need to change what they're designed to do if we're going to change anything. And that means we've got to get foundational. The foundation of public schools in this nation is rotten. It is, it is a part of the white supremacist, classist, patriarchal, heteronormative, xenophobic project of the United States. 
that's the real value of the, the kind of historical investigation is that when you look at the historical documents, right, you see they didn't code it. They didn't code it and they didn't coat it, right? It, it, the, the purpose was completely transparent. And they said, oh, well, that now I understand why school starts at 8 a.m. Even though all of the, the, the research suggests that's really bad for children. All of the research. Right. So but then you understand why. Right. Oh, this was the project of business. Right. This was a project of like industrial growth. Right. That, that schools, schools were designed to prepare workers to sort them out. Right. Not if you are going to be a worker. Right. But what kind of worker were you going to be? And if you weren't going to function well in a factory environment, we had 13 years of data on you to show that you weren't. And, 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 we, and we coded you and coated you, right, with the preparation for other kinds of labor or, or the penal system, mm. right? And so this all sounds very nefarious, and, and, and it is. <laughs> like, it, it is. And, and I think this country has so much trouble with telling the damn truth. There is no reasonable argument or evidence that schools are a public good as they're currently designed, right? There's no evidence to suggest that the history of public schools was about creating a pluralistic multiracial democracy. Zero. In fact, what all the evidence clearly indicates is that everything about the way we've designed schools, the, the school day, right? The, the splitting up of children by age, right? The, the, the under-resourcing, the de-skilling of teachers, right? The, the measuring all the lagging indicators and ignoring all the leading indicators. All of that, right, is, is, is a matter of fact as a, as a component of a historical trajectory. It is what is in the foundation. And what we start doing is we start now adding things on top of that rotten foundation, new desks, New kinds of like electronic whiteboards. New smart board, exactly. Yeah. Right. We see it in the news. We see it in the discussions. We see it, many of us in our own school districts, of the, the vitriol, the, the, the anger, the, the commentary, the discussion, the debate around critical race theory. Why do you think CRT is misunderstood and maligned and by whom? Well, I think... CRT is misunderstood and maligned because we, we've never actually taught in our public school system, let alone our private school system, um, any um, real material, meaningful um, discussion about race. And so you have a society that is um, founded on a double genocide. Right. We, we are the only industrialized nation in the history of the world to have committed two genocides against African people and against indigenous people. We can read the history. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Right. Are we going to tell the truth about how this society was founded, what our foundation is? And there's lots more in the foundation. Right. But those two massive fissures in the foundation, those huge cracks are undoing all of the, 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 the good stuff, right? Because if you heap good stuff inside of 
a faulty foundation, it all comes in on itself, right? So repair is due. Atonement is due. And that has to begin with us telling the truth to our children in schools about the history of race, the history of racism, the history of white supremacy in this nation. And, and I think that one of the reasons that people are, are, are resistant to do it, even those people that, that, that think it's important, um, is because the way we've designed schools is that the teacher has to have the answers. Mm. The textbook has to have the answers, right? And so we're scared to talk about it because kids then ask questions, right? Because kids are like often zero filter, yeah. right? They just get to the heart of the matter. And instead of going on a journey with our children, right, and being part of a genuine spirit of wondering and believing that our children are our best shot to get us out of this, right? And, and the only way they're going to get us out of this is if we start asking better questions, if school becomes about actual inquiry into the real material, social, political, economic challenges that are facing our nation and facing our communities. And, and, then, and then creating, right, a structure of inquiry and wondering and study and investigation, right, about, well, what, what, what might we be able to do about this? And, and, and then, right, 13 years later, we're going to have incredible conversations because kids are going to be fluent in the conversation about race, about white supremacy, about the history of the nation, right? And, and they can come down wherever they want. Like, I, I certainly, you know, want my sons to come down with a particular kind of sense and sensibility, right? But I can't dictate that. What I can dictate is the kinds of questions that I'm preparing them to be able to investigate. And I think that's why people are so spooked by CRT, is because they literally don't have the vocabulary to be able to have a meaningful conversation about race. But, but can we do that? Can we do that? Can we have that conversation, that meaningful conversation, if schools are as segregated as they often are? Yeah, I, I, I think we can. Um, I, I think that they get a lo lot more fruitful when they're less segregated. But But I also feel like there's a space where um, it's important that um, that white folks, right, are talking about this amongst white folks and that people of color, right, are talking amongst it, uh, about it amongst people of color. And I think if, if you really are fluent, right, and that's a, you know, a, a total binary, right, it's obviously much more complicated than that. But if, if what happens, okay, when you become fluent in something is that you start seeking out other fluencies mm. that expand your fluency. So I think we're much more likely, right, to have um, healthy, right, racially um, uh, uh, complex communities and discussions if we, you start, you start where you are. Do you need to be fluent or do you need to have at least some familiarity with the vocabulary? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an arc of development. Right. That, that, yes, you need to be fluent. Right. But but I mean, would we say like, you know, no, you don't need to be fluent in any language. No, like you need to be fluent, but you have to start somewhere. OK. And, and I yes. think that, yes. that that's the that's the place where people get spooked. Right. Because it's not safe to start. 
because because and we've set that condition in schools right we have normed the silence around suffering in schools i don't care who your parents are right you are socialized in school to understand that you you compartmentalize discussions of suffering and and until we bust those boundaries right and say that that no like that is what it means to be learned right that is a, another you know cornell westian right framework that i think is is apropos here is he distinguishes between intelligence and intellect right and and, he, and what we do in schools is intelligence which he calls a manipulative factor right we we, we manipulate what we decide is evidence of intelligence but intellect he says is the evaluation of the evaluation and examination of all the hidden precept pre pre um supposed right truths the tacit assumptions right everything is up for discussion that's what it means to develop intellectuals we don't have a society of intellectuals because we have not invested in intellectualism in schools right schools are about social reproduction they're not about change they're not about growth I, young people are down for that they are so down for that right? yes it's, yes it's the grown folks that freak out because I think they think that there's like the affective filter goes up. It's like if you can't dance and suddenly like you're put in a position where you have to dance, you really can't dance. And it's neurological, right? Like yeah. you literally have a biochemical reaction, right? To I know I can't dance. Yeah. Right. So I think that where I want us to get is to say wherever you are, wherever you are on this development, mm -hmm. this arc of development this so-called fluency is cool. You're good. You're good. Anybody who teaches you to hate yourself is the devil, right? You, you, you can't, right? Be in a position where I'm not good enough and then, and then be a learner, right? We, we've got to be okay with where we are and you can't stay there. Wherever you are is cool. You just can't stay there. And that's my, that, that is differentiated instruction. That is the gold standard of good teaching, right? Is that you baseline, right? You baseline, you don't expect everybody to be at the same place at the same time. It's absurd, right? And it's ignorant. It denies everything we know about human development. So just be cool with it. Like we are where we are and we're not good at it and that's okay, but we can't stay there. And that's the issue that I have with all of this blowback around CRT is that you're not even trying to grow. You're not even trying to address the legacy of racism and white supremacy. You're not even trying. And, and the crazy thing is, is that people of color are still willing to stay in it. They're mm -hmm. still willing to show up and have the conversations and carry this absurd burden right? Over and over and over and over again, right? What, what a beautiful humanity, right? That exists in people of color, in racist societies, right? What a beautiful humanity that exists in women, in patriarchal societies, right? And how do we honor that and respect that? Will you honor and respect that by being committed to grow and being committed to telling the truth, and being okay with the fact 
that you don't have to have all the answers. And in fact, you can't because you're so nascent in this learning. And I think the real rub here is that it's the people with power and the people with very little power that are hanging on, right? Because they believe that if they step into that water, they'll drown. It's dangerous water. It's dangerous water, man. Yeah. But there's way more sharks in the water that we've, that we've curated and cultivated. And, and, and those sharks are showing up now in ways where the, the suffering, right, is just exponentially higher. And, it's, and, and we're careening toward this cliff. And yeah. th- th- there is a moment at which when, when, when you know, your vehicle is careening towards the edge of a cliff, there is a moment at which it doesn't matter if you break anymore. And, and that, that is my worry that we, we will wait too long to, to slam on the brakes. So maybe one way to slam on the brakes. I have heard you talk about community responsiveness as opposed to cultural responsiveness. What is that? Why do you advocate for one over the other? One of the big challenges in our field is the knowing doing gap. So um, when, when, when we began to try to apply the concept of cultural responsiveness or culturally sustaining, um, it, was, it was in, you know, sort of um, in the 90s, right, and the, the 2000s coming out of the 80s. And the 80s was the, the big multicultural education movement. Right. It was really the first time that we started talking about race and culture in curriculum. And um, and so what I saw, what what I have seen happen, right, is that um, that culture um, became a proxy for race. Mm. And um, and then um, and then in the kind of the the, the typical pattern right, of white supremacy, um, then race became essentialized. So it was like, oh, you know, Gloria wrote this book, Dream Keepers, and she was, you know, looking at all these teachers of um, effective teachers of, of black children and was really trying to understand what, why are these teachers so effective when so many of the other teachers are not? What is they're doing? What, what can we say about those practices? And then, and then people took that work and put it on the ground, right, and ignored all the nuance and complexity of community. And they said, oh, I have black kids, right? And Gloria Latson Billings said, if you do this with black kids, it'll work, mm. right? And we saw the same thing in multicultural ed. It was like, oh, black kids, right, aren't doing well in school because they don't get to read any black authors. So let's give them the autobiography of Malcolm X, and then they'll be really excited about school. And of course, they weren't any more excited about school. In fact, sometimes they even hated school even more because they didn't change the pedagogy right because curriculum you can design without children and community present you can do it in the boardroom right you can do it in the teacher's lounge with a bunch of people who look like you think like you and talk like you and and then and then when when kids didn't you know when 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 black and brown kids start doing worse in school despite the multicultural education movement then then right then the logic became see it's not us it's them Mm. Right. I mean, we gave them, you know, what they were asking for. And and then and then the same thing started to happen with culturally relevant teaching, which was 
we started essentializing. So it's like, oh, this program worked with Latino kids in San Antonio. And I have Latino kids in East LA. Let me just carbon copy, right? What we do because all Latino kids are the same. And of course, right, this has not shifted, right? Engagement, achievement, outcome at all, right? Because it's not actually addressing culture. So race and ethnicity are a component of culture, right? But, but so is youth, right? You ever heard of youth culture, right? So age, um, gender, sexual identity, community, zip code, right? Yeah. All of those are what it means to be, right? Culturally responsive. So what we started at, at Community Responsive Education, we started, right, um, centering this idea of community. Because if you are community responsive, you have to be culturally responsive. But you have to understand that culture is always situated inside of community. So the real work is to first embed yourself in the community where you're serving, right? To be a learner, to be humble. Right? I've often said that the, the best teachers I've ever been around are ethnographers of the communities they serve, right? And, and via that ethnography, via that that real inquiry into and, and connection and, and, and co-elaboration with community, then you can start designing curriculum and pedagogy that is responsive to the actual needs, interests, challenges, problems, wonderings, hopes, dreams of the community that you serve. And it also then challenges schools to say that you can't have a fixed curriculum. Because communities are dynamic. They're constantly shifting and changing, which means that we've got to create the space for teachers in schools to be creative around their curriculum. And we've got to loose ourselves from these corporate textbook, right, factories that are, that again, like there's, there's zero evidence. <laughs> there's that, that those are actually engaging and meaningful for children and that they ever could be because they're not actually situated in the material conditions of an individual child or a school community's real life. So it's possible. I know it's possible, A, because I've done it, B, because I work with teachers all over the country that do it all the time. But the problem is it's all on sweat equity and on their back. Yes. And this is why we're losing so many of those teachers. Because we are a field that has totally failed to invest in ingenuity, in creativity, and in innovation. Let me ask you about that investment, about creativity, innovation. This will tie as well to community and a community that you are near. You mentioned the word design just a moment ago. Research and design, R&D. You, uh, I, I assume that right now you're in East Oakland. Is that right? Is that where you're? You're right. And uh, there's an area super close to where you are. You may have heard of it, Silicon Valley. And there's just a little bit of R&D that goes on in Silicon Valley. Um, what have you observed about Silicon Valley's relationship to failure? And how would you like to see some of that approach to R&D applied to education R&D? Well, yeah, like, bullseye <laughs> um the, the, it's it's particularly insulting for for me and people that live in you know our surrounding community 
um, this this you know uh, dilemma around innovation in schools because of exactly because we're so close to Silicon Valley where if you're not failing you're not trying. Hmm. You know, like one of their biggest budget lines um, around uh, in all these companies um, is R and D, and and um, and and the reason for that is is because they know that 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 the greatest innovations, right, the, the greatest product development, um, the greatest response to their um, clients um, is in their ability to keep testing new things and having it blow up on them. But what they do that schools don't do is that they have a, a, they have a structure for learning from failure, right? And schools are punished for failing. And so because schools are punished for failing, they hide their failures. They try to cover them up, right? And so there's zero learning from the failures. It's push the failure out. You know, my one of my maestros is... Um, name is Jerry Theo. He runs the National Compadres Network. And he says that wounded children speak the most truth and we resent them for it. And so the wounded child, right, is teaching us so much about how schools are designed to fail those that need them the most. And what we do with that child is we punish them and exclude them because they're, they're peeling back right? That the, the Dunbar's mask, right? They're taking the mask off school and they're saying to us in an, with an unvarnished truth that you are harming me. You, you, you have zero interest in my well-being. Stop saying you care about me. Literally, fuck you. They're at that level. And we know, you know, I'm, we're in this conversation with turnaround, right? So we know biochemically, right? Physiologically, mm-hmm. neurologically, why that's happening, right? Yes. They're yep. elevated, right? Because of their toxic stress. But what we're not seeing is the value in that. We're not seeing the instructiveness of that because we cannot stomach failure. We're allergic to it in schools. And, and, and for that reason, we fail constantly. Whereas the culture in Silicon Valley and in other like growth, quote unquote, growth industries, right? They, it's, it's not that they like want to fail. I mean, they do want to fail, right? But I think the key learning here is that they create a structure around failure, right? So that it's not failure. Failure is learning, yep. right? They're synonymous. And fail fast so you can learn faster. You can get more quicker. You can apply what you learn from the failure, Absolutely. Right. But but schools, right, are not set up to do that in any way, shape, form or fashion. And you can start with the budget. Find me a school. Find me a district who has who has any R&D baked line in their budget, Mm. let alone a significant amount. Right. And that that's not school's fault. That's the nation's fault. That we, we have given, we have turned to universities, right, and think tanks and philanthropy, right, to fund R&D for schools. I, I want to close by asking if you happen to know a poem, you might even know it by heart, and if you don't, I'm happy to read it for you. It's called The Rose That Grew From Concrete. 
You heard of it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you happen to know it by heart? If not, I'll read it. I don't want to put you on the spot. I've got it yeah, here in front of me. I, I know ver my own version of it by heart, but go ahead. So the rose that grew from concrete. Did you hear about the rose that grew from a crack in the concrete? Proving nature's law is wrong. It learned to walk without having feet. Funny, it seems, but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from concrete when no one else ever cared. What do you hear when you hear that poem? Uh, it's, it's the metaphor for the wounded child. Um, and the concrete is, you know, all of the layers of um, toxic stress that um, young people are exposed to as a result of the radicalized inequities in our society, that the kind of suffering that we see in so many young people is not natural. It's, 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 it's not natural to the human condition. It's unnatural. And that's why their bodies have, um, they get out of their stasis. They get out of who they really are. Um, that's what happens when you get wounded. Um, and when, when it's unrelenting, right, that's the concrete. And, and when you think about concrete, it, it is perhaps the worst possible environment in which something can attempt to grow, right? It's devoid of light, it's devoid of key nutrients, it's devoid of water. And on top of all that, it's, it's toxic, right? The chemicals in the concrete toxify the soil. And yet you can walk outside your house right now and find life, right? Finding its way through. And that's what is happening for so many of our vulnerable youth is that they're, they're not just being asked to show up to school and pay attention, right? And be a good student and focus and do their homework, right? They're being asked to do that, right? While having to fight through concrete just to get basic, right? Human needs, food, water, shelter, clothing, right? The base of Maslow's so-called hierarchy of needs, right? Is under threat for them every day. And we're asking them to do higher order stuff, right? And then adding to the concrete when they don't, right? Hmm. When they, when, yeah. right? So we're layering on new concrete. But um, what, what I appreciate about Tupac's um, metaphor um, is and, and the reason why I think young people are so drawn to that right concept of the rose that grew from concrete is because what, what he what he says and when he in other versions of it right he he says that um, that I see your damaged petals but I also see your tenacity and your will to reach the sun and. And this is this that's an adult choice, right? When children show up, right, the wounded ones, the vulnerable ones, we make a choice as grown-ups about what we see, because they do have damaged petals, because they're growing in concrete, right? So if we focus on their damaged petals, then that becomes right how we move and think about them and with them and against them. Right? But if we focus on their tenacity and their will to reach the sun, 
when you think about what is it, what it actually takes to walk a war zone just to get to school, when you think about what it takes to show up food deprived, clothing deprived, right? Safety deprived, right? And I don't just mean physical safety. I mean, all the forms of safety. When you, sh- when you find the tenacity and the will to show up to school in a society that teaches you to hate yourself for the color of, this, of your skin and the texture of your hair, the language that your parents speak, the neighborhood that you come from, and you still show up, how do we not, how do we not have institutions that see that as the most important ingredient for intellectual development. Why are we talking about grit? The only people who talk about grit are the people who never had to have grit. The kind of grit it takes to grow up in a nation state that from its inception has treated you as less than human, whose whose peace officers are constantly executing your people on the streets who lynched you, who deprived you of basic human decency to not understand that I don't need you to talk to me about grit. I need you to have grit. I need you to have grit that matches the grit of black and indigenous people in this nation, right? That's what I need. Jeff Duncan Andrade, right, as a teacher, as a father, as a community member, I need to have the grit that, that mirrors the kind of grit I see in Black and Indigenous children. And that's why I've said that, that, that need, that's the focus for schools. That's the only conversation I want to hear in schools, is how is this school going to guarantee that Black and Indigenous children have a platinum level experience, whatever that means. Because if Black and Indigenous children show up every day in schools and are well, every kid there is going to be well. Because we've, we've inverted it finally so that those who have the least get the most. And those who have the most get the least. And I think that's the, that's the rub, right? That, 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 that's why, I don't know if you all have read The Some of Us. Um, but that, that book, I think, is so important because what she reveals in that book is that it's not a zero-sum game. Hmm. If you give to Black and Indigenous children, you're not taking away from white children. You're not taking away from other children. You're actually giving to them, too. Because when we have a truly well, pluralistic, multiracial democracy, all boats rise. right? And, and you can't have that. You cannot have that without paying the debt that is due for the hundreds and hundreds of years where we did not tell the truth, where we did not atone for all the harm that we've done. And now we know with medical certainty what our ancestors and our elders have been saying all along, which is that slavery right, and genocide is not over that it's coded in our bodies, that level of toxicity literally alters your DNA. And if your DNA is altered, that means you pass it generationally. All debts come due and they will be paid. 
right? It's at some point or another. And my hope, my dream, my sincere wish, and my belief is that um, if we can wrap our heads and our arms and our hearts around that and rethink, redesign, repurpose schools with that intention, saying what would it mean for us every single day to make sure that our Black and our Indigenous children are well seen, loved, cared for, then we'll be all right. We'll be better than all right. We'll be thriving in ways that we, we never imagined was possible. And I don't look very much further than my own children and, you know, the children that they're in school with every day um, to garner the grit, right? And the courage and the hope to keep trying. I certainly do not have it all figured out. Um, but when, when I start wondering about what my purpose is, um, I start looking for cracks in the concrete. And I start thinking about how do I drill myself down into that crack, right? Hold it open a little wider so that more water, more light can get down there. Because I don't think that I'm going to be the one that unlocks it. You know, Pac said this too. Like he said, I, I, don't, I don't believe that I'm, I'm going to change the world. But I guarantee you I'll spark the mind that does. And I, I don't know that I can make that guarantee. I'm not, I don't know if I'm that good of a teacher but, but I do believe that, um, that if that is the purpose of schools, right, to really spark those minds and to know that, that, that what's going to save us is likely going to come from communities that we have destroyed for years and years and years. And if that's the project, right, to hold open the concrete so that those young people can bloom, it won't be long before the concrete is replaced by a rose garden and we won't be talking about like individual roses, you know, that, 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 the success story, right. We'll be talking about transformation of the unnatural circumstances um, to something that has true beauty and is, is worthy of the kind of rhetoric that this society has been um, so willing to, to constantly dance around, right, without ever creating the reality that matches the rhetoric. Well, I know that you are every day pouring yourself into those cracks between the concrete. And uh, I know you may not seek to take credit for it, but there likely have been just a couple of roses who have been given the opportunity to bloom and who knows, maybe there's even a, a garden growing in East Oakland, and maybe it'll grow beyond East Oakland as uh, your work and the work of others continues. Dr. Duncan Andrade, Jeff, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work. And thank you for the conversation. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. Take care of yourselves. That was my conversation with Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade. My thanks to Dr. Duncan Andrade for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.